All right, let us uh, pray before we go further. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you uh, for the wonderful blessing that you are a God who speaks, who speaks to each of us, uh, who has spoken through the ages and spoke through Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that uh, as we reflect on the words that have been read, uh, that you continue to bless us, help us to remember this teaching of Jesus's, help us to understand it and transform it into our lives. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, um, I'm going to start by telling you the story of uh, our wheelie bin. Um, so, uh, and even before I get to the story that's important about our wheelie bin, you need a bit of uh, wheelie bin backstory. Uh, and it all began when we moved into our house. We've recently moved to Perth, um, found a house after, you know, six months or so, moved in. And when you move in, um, you know, you start a relationship with your new bin. Uh, and our bin was uh, our recycling bin. So this is, you know, the, the general waste, that's, uh, that's not in this story. That was fine. The wheelie bin was, um, it had a broken lid, you know. It just, it just wasn't going up and down right. It was coming off. Uh, just moved in, so um, rang up the council, told them about our bin. Um, you know, we're really hoping that they'd come over and, uh, and uh, fix, you know, just fix it. You know, I don't know what they're going to do to it or maybe even give us a new bin. Anyway, they're very good about it. They came, um, came over, which is fantastic, responded well. Uh, but when they got there, they just whacked a cable tie on it, which was a bit disappointing um, but that's all right. It, it went up and down all right. Um, uh, and it was great to have. But the point of that, point of telling you about that part of it, is that we could easily see, we knew which was our bin pretty easily um, because it was the one with the council cable tie on it. And the other thing about our bin, our recycling bin, even though it was a little bit, you know, it wasn't the prettiest bin, you know, with its council cable tie, but it was a, uh, it was a good smelling bin right? I mean, it wasn't a good smelling bin, but, you know, for a bin, it, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a problem with its smell. It was nice, you know? And, uh, and uh, so our driveways, we've got this kind of thing going on where yet we all put our, all, there's like three driveways that all come together, and we all put our bins on the other side of the road, kind of in a little cluster. Uh, that's just the way it works there on uh, Dukedon Way. And so we put our bin out and um, it's recycling week, the recycling bin's out there and um, we're a bit slow to get it in, um, you know, not looking at anybody who's sitting over there in sort of the back row over there. <laughs> bit slow to get it in and uh, when we do go out there, there's one recycling bin left and this is not the bin with the council cable tie, right? What somebody else has got our bin and left us this bin. Now, this bin, I'm telling you, this bin stunk, right? This bin was, this is something else. This was like, I don't know what had gone on there. It was like somebody has, uh, somebody's like put the pizza boxes in the recycling, but they forgot that the pizzas were still in there. And they've left it there like three to six months and, and they'd ordered the seafood pizza. And that was all there, right? That's, 
It was like something had crawled in there and died. It was not just smelling bad, but it was smelling bad in a way that that badness was kind of bonded to the plastic at the bottom of it. And um, the thing about this is that it's kind of really obvious who's nicked our bin, right? Because it's the bin with the council cable tie. And it's kind of obvious, like they haven't done this by mistake. Like you can't mistake our decently smelling bin for this bin that smells like you need a priest to exercise this smell, right? So, and there it is. There's the bin down the way. So how do we respond to that, right? How should we respond in that kind of a situation? Uh, we're going to get to that in just a little while. Uh, that's just kind of an ordinary suburban story, right? We all kind of have things that go on in our lives and go on with our neighbours. Bought a letterbox uh, the other day just... Uh, and uh, the guy was telling me a story about... Um, uh, you know, there's two neighbours and there's somehow they've got... I don't know what's going on in their street, but one of them, he gets... He gets, the, uh, he gets a chain and he wraps it around his neighbour's letterbox and attaches it to his car and drives off with his letterbox down there. These things happen, right? I'm sure you've had something in your life uh, where somebody's done something wrong to you, maybe in a big way, maybe in a small way, uh, something at work or school, something in your family. Um, maybe you've got scammed. Uh, and Jesus is talking here about those kind of situations. Uh, the situations in this passage are all something that somebody has done something wrong to the person in question, to the disciple. Uh, something sort of morally wrong or something that they won't be, um, they won't be liking. Uh, and what Jesus says here about how to respond is incredibly powerful. It's interesting that this is, there's just four verses uh, that were read out to us. And in those four verses, there are three things that have become sayings in the English language. Um, uh, these are things that uh, stick in our minds. Firstly, I mean, it tells you that Jesus is an amazing teacher, that he has these kind of... Um, uh, pictures, word pictures that just stay with us. But also it shows us that this is, um, this is memorable teaching. Uh, this is something that is radical and sticks in our mind. Um, these are culture-shaping statements. So we have an eye for an eye, which is actually a quote from the Old Testament. Um, so you may say that doesn't really count. But then we have... Turn the other cheek is an English expression uh, from verse 38 and go the extra mile comes from verse 41. Two statements that are radically different to the way that our culture understands an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And when people do talk about those, they're usually talking about them in some kind of revenge or retaliation to even up the score. Whatever bad thing has happened to them, they'll do something equal in return. And it seems by uh, Jesus's but I tell you and his illustrations that follow that the people at the time were thinking about it in much the same way in terms of uh, taking revenge, 
uh, or evening up in retribution. Um, but this understanding of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, really lacks um, a proper understanding of the moral issues involved. Uh, Interestingly, that, uh, there are at least, as far as I've counted, there are at least six films um, that have been made in the last 40-ish years that have the title of the film, An Eye for an Eye. Uh, the first one, um, as far as I'm aware, was a Chuck Norris film in the 80s, um, and it was just that. It was a Chuck Norris film from the 80s. The second one was a lot kind of more interesting and complex in terms of the moral issues involved. Um, and it was about a mother taking revenge uh, on the man who raped and murdered her daughter. Um, but interestingly, um, the film got terrible reviews, um, uh, despite the fact that uh, it had uh, Sally Field in it. And Sally Field is just amazing in everything she does. Um, but there's a Pulitzer um, Prize-winning um, critic, this guy called Roger uh, Ebert, who put his finger on the problem with the film. And he explained that uh, the film exploited the audience by showing the revenge, right, that's the basis of the film, without exploring the moral issues involved. And that's kind of a really interesting criticism to make of the film. It says that we can't just have the audience sit there and watch a character take revenge, like in this case she was taking revenge through murder, without an adequate kind of exploration of the moral issues. So even though it's kind of what the, the, what the audience wants, right? It, at, at first... the the audience almost wants to be exploited because there's kind of a side of us that is fascinated with the idea of revenge. That's why there's six films called An Eye for an Eye. But at some point in the movie, we're all going to kind of wake up and see that it's kind of morally bankrupt and the whole issue requires closer examination. And at that point, as an audience, we feel kind of cheap and dirty and manipulated. And to take the Old Testament um, teaching, an eye for an eye, in the way that was being done at the time of Jesus and as uh, people still do today, and to take that as revenge while failing to understand the moral complexities is to exploit the text, right? It's not to engage in the real issues. And to take a text out of its context is exploitation. And what we need to do is we need to kind of go back and see what was meant in the Old Testament. And when we do that, we see that Jesus isn't contradicting what's written there, but showing us its true meaning. And what he's going to do is show us it and then raise it one, right? He's going to plummet the complexities, draw out their true meaning and then reconfigure this in a new covenant kingdom framework that is going to show us the heart of the matter. And that's what we need to do now. But as we turn to the Old Testament, 
um, the thing that we should be paying attention to uh, is the point of view of the actions that are going on, right? So uh, to explain that, what I mean is that kind of what we want to be doing is um, think about the direction. So if I kind of think about myself as um, uh, the person who has done something wrong to somebody else, right, then that's kind of one thing, isn't it? Like I've done wrong and I need to think about what I am going to do to set that right for the other person. So that's one point of view that I want us to consider. But then there's another point of view that we might consider, and that's from the point of view of the person who has been wronged by that, by that other person. And that's a different point of view, and the Bible handles that in a different way. And that it causes us to question, what do I do when I'm in this position, and what do I do in, while I'm in that position? And that's what I want us to, to kind of um, have a look at as we get there. Um, so an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is found three times in the Old Testament, in the law. Uh, the first two of them are quite similar. They deal with um, personal, uh, personal injuries. And then the third one uses the same concept but in uh, the context of uh, being a witness in court. Uh, but what we're going to do is take the first of those, uh, which is the most in-depth, and that is in Exodus chapter 21, verses, well, it's, we'll start with verses 23 to 25. So it's, it's, it's worth turning to that because we're going to be having a look at that. So Exodus 21, verses uh, 23 to 25. Right, so there we have it. So I'll read that. But if there is a serious injury, then you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Right? Uh, and taken by itself, that's, that's pretty full on, isn't it? Um, but there are good reasons to see that this uh, is not about taking personal revenge. So firstly, um, even before we kind of get to the context of these verses, uh, we need to recognise that the law in general um, taught against revenge. Uh, so we see that in uh, Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. So that's a really significant verse. Um, that's the verse that uh, the second great command comes from, to love your neighbour. But if we go before love your neighbour, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. So don't seek revenge, don't bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. All right? So that's kind of the bigger picture. The law does not teach revenge, but we can see that even here in the context. The first thing to notice is if we go to the verse before uh, the ones that we read. So if we go back to verse 22, uh, it says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. So we can see from that 
that the context of how this is meant to play out is in the context of the law courts, right? The courts are involved, other people are involved, the husband of the woman involved is, is brought into it, okay? This is not personal revenge. This is something that's meted out carefully and evenly by society through the courts um, and, uh, and um, yeah, there's no sense that a person can take uh, personal revenge. Uh, the, the idea there is that the principle is guiding the courts, right? So the principle of uh, evening things up, that people need to be, there needs to be a punishment that fits the crime, that's the principle behind. And we don't have to take that an eye for an eye uh, kind of as a tight idea that if, if uh, one person's eye is lost, then the other person has to get their eye poked out. It doesn't work like that. And we see that in the exact, like, the verses after um, the, one, the, the one with eye for an eye in there. So you see it applied straight away. And so we see this in verse 26. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. Right? So they don't lose their own eye. They let the slave go free. It's not kind of that correspondence there. And then exactly the same, interestingly, the other one that's picked up is the tooth. Uh, verse 27, an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. Um, so uh, it, the person is compensated and the appropriate value, says God, like this is God's law, uh, the appropriate value for those things is the freedom of the slave. And notice in these uh, the point of view that it takes. It's not saying that if somebody uh, takes your eye out, um, that you get to do such and such. It's not kind of taking that point of view. It's more objective and it takes the point of view of the, of the court and what to do in that situation. And in doing that, it's more focused on the person who does wrong. It's showing us when we do something wrong that we have to respond appropriately. So the overall concept um, that applied to both physical injury and property is that if you've done something to someone, then they need to be compensated in some uh, way. And in this case, the value is like a one-to-one. -one. In other cases, especially in property, you have to pay back double if you've been particularly malicious in the way that you've taken it, or, and sometimes four times. And the person in the Bible who really got this concept was uh, Zacchaeus. Uh, when he encounters Jesus in Luke uh, 19, verse 8. Uh, so Luke 19, verse 8 says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anyone, I will pay back four times the amount. Right? He got it. He understands that he's done wrong and has a debt to those people. And this is a really important concept for us to grasp. Uh, if we are in a dispute and we're the ones who have it wrong, then there's been a debt created that we need to make up for. Right? We might have spoken badly or um, created physical or financial damage 
and we need to compensate by that by uh, giving back if it's financial uh, or perhaps in a kind of more abstract way like speaking well to somebody, caring for them, expressing our sorrow as it would be appropriate in that situation. But the Bible doesn't encourage us to do the same when we're on the other point of view. It's not saying that if you're wronged, make sure that you extract your due compensation. Jesus teaches us that when we take the point of view of the, of the, the other, the one who's been wronged, then we should forgive freely without forcing the other to make up for it, just like God did for us. And in this way, we put the other person first. Uh, we're always applying the principle in the way that's not best for us, but is best for them, depending on our point of view. And if we could apply that principle that when we've done wrong, we make up for it, and when the other person has done wrong, we forgive them freely without forcing them to make up for it, then we will all have stronger marriages, we'll have better relationships within the church, and we will be a radical model of God's love and justice to the world. And here in the passage, Jesus is looking from the point of view of the Christian who has been wronged by another person. So in all the examples that he's given, there's a person who is doing something wrong or something that we wouldn't want. And Jesus teaches, this is his kind of the main uh, point that he's making, do not resist an evil person. All right, not only do we not re retaliate against that person, but Jesus' examples show us a way that we are uh, that we're so not active in resisting them that we take a step further away from it by kind of ensuring that our hands are completely clean of any kind of speck of revenge or retribution so let's kind of get into it and let's look at these four illustrations that Jesus gives about not resisting an evil person uh, for the first three of them are right on point, and then the fourth, Jesus kind of gives us a more general principle. So the first is in verse 39. It says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So the thing that we need to understand, uh, that we would have understood if we were in kind of like Matthew's audience reading this, different to us reading this, is that in their culture... Uh, a slap on the cheek is a public insult. I guess it is in our culture as well to a degree, but to them, with their culture, with this honour-shame um, kind of system, it was um, a, a public insult. And if you think about getting hit on the right cheek, so uh, it's natural to assume that the person doing the hitting is going to be right-handed because that's the law of averages. So if you imagine getting hit on that's like slapped on the right cheek, how do you slap somebody on the right cheek? You, you backhand them, right? If, you, if you're using your right hand. And that's like the double insult, to backhand slap somebody across their cheek. And what Jesus is saying is that we need to accept the insult. So we don't 
retaliate, right? And, and they could have. In their culture, there was a way to actually sue for a slap on the cheek, not because you've hurt your cheek, but to regain the honour. And Jesus is saying, don't regain the honour. In fact, make yourself vulnerable to further insult. Right, so just to be clear about that, Jesus is not condemning violence. He's not telling you to stay in an unsafe situation. Uh, he's certainly not standing, uh, he's not telling you to stand by and, and watch injustice happening, like as if you could kind of watch a weak and vulnerable person uh, and then you just kind of say to them, well, just suck it up. Okay, what he's talking about is honour. And what he's saying is, let the score stay uneven. Okay, we need to be willing to endure shame. And Jesus is our ultimate model in this. So in John 18, uh, verse 23, Jesus is actually in front of the high priest, so he's in a, a Jewish situation, and he's struck, right? Not specifically on the right cheek, but he is slapped in the face. Um, he doesn't just sort of let go of the, of the, of, of the injustice. He, he actually points it out. So he points out that that was wrong that he was slapped, but then he doesn't retaliate. So it's not that he doesn't understand the wrongness and he doesn't think the wrongness is, is unimportant, but he doesn't retaliate and he, in fact, allows himself to be crucified, which is the ultimate indignity, the death that is only fit for slaves and the worst criminals. And he has a sign above him ironically stating that he's the king of the Jews. Absolute insult. The second one is in verse 40. So it says, If anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Right? So with modern manufacturing, shirts are a lot cheaper. Um, it wouldn't really seem worthwhile to sue somebody uh, for uh, their $30 flano from Lowe's. Uh, like I got this week. But 2,000 years ago, um, your shirt, right, which is actually like a full-length robe, was a much bigger deal. And it would seem, like even in that, even though it's a bigger deal, that this is a pretty bad situation. Like the person is being sued for their own clothing. Clearly they don't have much left to be sued for. Um, it's kind of outrageous then that the person should also be willing to give up the outer robe. Okay, so uh, just to explain that, people had like a, a, um, a long garment thing. Uh, there's no word for it in English, so they translate it as shirt. And there's kind of an outer one that goes over that. And your outer one is what keeps you warm. And for poorer people, they might have just had one of each, one under one, and certainly only one over one, which doubled as your blanket for night. Um, and uh, the thing to understand about this is that outer one is protected by the law. There's actually laws, it's actually in the, the, the Jewish law, that you cannot take somebody's outer garment. Okay, It's protected. You can't take it. If they owe you money, um, you cannot take that away from them as payment for that. Um, so for us, losing a coat would be, you know, just be an inconvenience, I guess. But um, it's, it's more like if you imagine somebody who's sleeping rough, 
They only have one coat and you somehow try and take that away from them. So here the disciple, the member of the kingdom, um, gives up or is willing to give up the thing that is legally protected. Okay, he's giving up his worldly comfort, the thing that keeps him warm, when he's not required to by the law. To somebody who is already against him. That is outrageous sacrifice. The third illustration is in verse 41. Uh, it says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Uh, and you might want to know, you might be asking, like, why would anybody want to force you to go like one mile anyway, um, other than, of course, a PE teacher? And it has to do with Roman occupation. right? So soldiers weren't paid very much, but they had the right to enlist civilians uh, into forced labour. So here it would be a Roman soldier who is demanding that somebody carries his belongings for him. Right? So he's just taken a civilian, right? You're going to carry this, come with me. Now, not only is that hard work, but it's really inconvenient because you can't do your normal work. And also, it rubs your face in the fact that you are oppressed by these people, by this foreign power. Um, so going back to Jesus' main teaching, don't resist an evil person. Right? The, the evil person, the bad person in this situation is a foreign occupier. And Jesus shockingly says, don't resist this occupation. Not only that, but go as far as to graciously do more for the soldier than he than is required. Right, but again, like all of these, we don't want to press that too far. This doesn't mean that uh, when we look around the world and we see oppressed people, um, like especially if we see civilians or women and children uh, who are being wrongfully treated, we don't just sort of sit back and, you know, from our comfort of our TVs and say, well, guys, you know, go the extra mile. It doesn't mean that if we lived in occupied Holland during World War II that we would go and help the Nazis find hidden Jews. That would be morally wrong. Okay, that would actually be benefiting you because you might sort of get better treatment from the Nazis for somebody else's suffering. But it comes back to that point of view. Being self-sacrificial is very different to offering up somebody else who is a vulnerable person. And then the last illustration is more general uh, in the sense that there's no particular oppressor uh, involved or an evil person, um, but it's the same general attitude of non-resistance and overflowing generosity. So in verse 42 it says... Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, it might be um, like a, a somebody asking for money, like a, a beggar on the street. Um, it might be a neighbour. Uh, but the attitude is always one of overflowing generosity. Don't resist or turn away their request. Now, there's some things that need to be said um, as we bring these kind of four illustrations together as a collection. First, uh, we need to see that 
Jesus, as he often does, is talking in extremes. Okay, these things actually become problematic if you take them too literally. Like, ending up naked is more than just a small cultural problem. Um, it, we could point out that giving without reserve to somebody with a drugs problem is helping no one. But they're not meant to be literal instructions, right? They're graphic illustrations. And the graphic illustrations that, that work very well seen by the fact that two of them have become part of the English language. When Jesus is, when, you know, when I was telling you about when Jesus got slapped on the cheek, he doesn't literally kind of turn his other cheek, right, and, and, and kind of ask for another one to be planted on the other side. That would actually be really kind of, in that situation, kind of cheeky and disrespectful. But he does demonstrate the attitude of non-resistance to the point of outrageous generosity. And from the examples that he gives, it seems clear that in Jesus' day, people were wrongly applying an eye for an eye to promote revenge and retribution. But Jesus says, no, kingdom behaviour is quite different. Right? When somebody hits us, what we want to do is we want to hit back. But Jesus says, be vulnerable for another shot. Right? When somebody nicks our recycling bin, we want to nick theirs back. Okay? But Jesus says, no, be willing to give them the general waste too. Right? Your boss or your teacher who's been unreasonable, Jesus says, do some more work. Right? Often making peace involves being vulnerable to being hurt again. And here we really come to understand the Beatitudes. So remember back to the start of the chapter. Right? It might seem like a long time ago. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right, all of that seemed really nice at first when you first read it. Right, it's all this lovely picture of the kingdom, all kind of cotton wool clouds and bouncy sheep. Okay, isn't it nice to think that the meek get included, that everyone's so inclusive that those poor guys in society get brought in, right, as if it's some kind of wet blanket religion. But here in this passage, we see that the Beatitudes are not kind of just about who happens to be included in the kingdom, but it's actually about the type 
of behaviours we need to actively pursue. Right, so being a child of the kingdom means actively pursuing meekness. It means actually pursuing righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. It involves being a radical peacemaker, including outrageous self-sacrificial behaviour. It involves a willingness to subject ourselves to persecution. In the illustrations Jesus gave, we see that he calls us to sacrifice our honour, our legal protections, our freedom and our finances. There's a branch of Christianity that is all about fighting for our liberty, our rights and our freedoms. But that Christianity doesn't match up with what we see here. And we can be sacrificial in this way, in the way that Jesus calls for, because of where we find our identity as disciples. We don't find our identity in our finances or in our national borders or our freedoms. We don't find them in our civil rights or our physical defences. We find our identity in Christ. Right? The one who demonstrated meekness on the cross. The one who was righteous. The one who was pure in heart. The one who brought us peace. The persecuted man of God. That is our identity. And while Jesus worked in every way for the good of others, he gave up everything for himself. And that is the attitude that we should take. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, these things are so hard and so big. It is so radical to be a disciple of your son, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we know that on our own, we can't be that person. We pray that you fill us with your spirit of peace and grace. Help us take this teaching with us that it might change us and work towards being the disciple that reflects Jesus. Amen.